So I think yeah. what I'm so saying it, is the cycle of life is, is yeah. continuing. That yes, it seems to me that the trajectory of most things is consolidation and fragmentation. It happens with countries, yeah, happens with businesses. And so we're seeing consolidation right now, but I also think we're seeing fragmentation and, and niching as well. Welcome to Inside Reproductive Health, the shop talk of the fertility field. Here, you'll hear authentic and unscripted conversations about practice management, patient relations, and business development from the most forward-thinking experts in our field. Wall Street and Silicon Valley both want your patience, but there is a plan if you are willing to take action. Visit fertilitybridge.com to learn about the first piece of building a fertility marketing system, the goal and competitive diagnostic. Now, here's the founder of Fertility Bridge and the host of Inside Reproductive Health, Griffin Jones. On today's episode, I'm back in the lab and I'm across the pond. I've had too many guests from the UK or from Europe. And on today's show, I have an embryologist, someone with lab experience, someone running an initiative that they'll talk about from the UK, who has also worked many years in Europe. This is Giles Palmer. He is based in Cardiff, Wales at the moment, and now he's the executive director of a group called the International IVF Initiative that he formed with some other lab folks at the start of the pandemic. And now they have audiences of several hundred people, not just embryologists and lab staff, but also clinicians. In this episode, we talk about what clinicians, managers, and other folks who aren't in the lab have to worry about what's happening in lab because it's coming for them. So enjoy this show with Giles. Mr. Palmer, Giles, welcome to Insider Reproductive Health. Thank you very much. We meet at last, don't we, really? I think we occupy the same, you know, virtual universe, if you like, but it's good to see you, you know, in camera now. So it's great to be on the show. Thank you very much. Well, I'd like to give you the ability to siphon some of my audience. I'd like some exposure to yours because I got to confess to you, Giles, I have not had too many guests from the UK on the show of 120 pod you might be number three maybe number four and so it's well been, that's fine yeah I haven't recruited too many guests and so I felt that we need more representation across the Anglosphere and, and hence here you are well thank you very much I shan't be offended at all I mean I only moved to the UK only about six years ago yes I was born in Britain but I've worked most of my life in Europe Okay. And I came back to the UK, you know, only a short time ago. So although we're out of Europe, I still like to think of myself as European, but certainly from across the pond. So yeah, perhaps I can give a different perspective in things in the IVF world in that respect. So having worked in Europe for a number of years, now working in the UK and the initiative that you're involved in that we'll talk about, you have, sounds like you have a, a good exposure to both the UK and Europe. And I want you to give us just a little bit of the state of the union of what's happening over there. So here in the U.S. and Canada for the last year and a half, as, I'm, as you're probably aware, most centers have just been slammed. Some have not if they're in competitive markets or if they haven't updated their business in a long time. But I would say 75% of centers have been slammed. I, that might be starting to change now. I'll talk about that in a little bit if, if that might be the case. But what's been happening in Europe and the U.K. post-COVID? Well, sure. But what's that word you used? Slam. Was that? What's that? <laughs> very busy. It means oh, very be, busy. Okay, to be, got you. To, to be at or exceeding capacity. Well, thank you very much for clarifying that. Marvellous. Yes, it is incredibly busy. 
okay and um both in europe europe in and in the uk and you can see this from the posts you know everyone is hiring everyone is hiring and that's from the countries that i've worked for and in, and in the uk you know but why is that it's not just that there's been like a bottleneck you know and people haven't been treated over the pandemic but i think first of all from a patient point of view i think that people have thought you know they'll like reassess their life and they say yes i want to have ivf okay so yes there's been a small amount of people that couldn't be treated and now they've been treated but there's a lot of people that are thinking yes you know i want to start a family so i think there's been increased demand also you know the life of the embryologist has changed dramatically over the past few years i mean there's more free cycles okay which means you have to have a devoted person to do that in the lab it's not so much you know like full rounded like in the ivf lab you'll have an egg collection you'll fertilize and some days later you'll then have the transfer you know a lot of people are freezing the embryos and transferring them in a further cycle so that means that there's a lot of you know thaws to be done as well which means as well for like the dynamics of a clinic as well and i don't know if you touched on this in some of your programs but you get a higher throughput through your theater if people are just having egg collections when people are having egg collections you know egg retrievals but also embryo transfers then there's going to be some time that you've got to sort of a lot for that but i think that dynamics have changed in the clinic and and even within the inner workings people are working a lot more and continuing on for that of course you know pgt and biopsy you know other techniques are being used as well so i you know i just think in a way it's a great time to be an embryologist but it's a very tiring time to be an embryologist is batching common in the uk and in europe um not so much, no. In Europe, and especially where I was, like in the Mediterranean, which is quite shocking for, you know, people in the States, I know that, like, usually in summer, we, like, wind down. And there's a reason for that. Like, you know, for example, I was in Greece, and there was no treatments in August. Okay, but that meant that, you know, the whole staff could be taken, you know, could take a holiday, you know, the clinic could be shut down, there could be just, you know, like maintenance done on that period of time. And then, you know, back up again after August. So that was like, in that sense, batching. But in the UK, no, there's no such distinction between, you know, summer and winter there, mainly because of the weather, I think. But there's none of that that goes on. Obviously, in large air, you know, larger countries like India, there is a lot of batching, just because it's such a wide expanse. And there's such a demand for embryologists that they cannot be treated in that sense. So there'll be a clinic which will open in like a remote area, for you know for a certain amount of weeks but i wouldn't say batching is done no no the only time it may be done i think is in clinics that treat hiv patients and they must sort of have a certain time where they'll treat hiv patients you know for risk of contamination and whatever they'll like batch them in that sense but no it's work all around the year i think a few days off in holidays you know but it's, it's busier than ever so what are people doing to meet the increased volume you said everybody's hiring which means that there are not enough people coming and filling those positions as quickly as possible as yeah. is here and so what are people doing i mean they're desperately trying to find um staff and it's not always the solution that you can find you know like train staff okay there was in fact i was giving a talk in arizona that was the start of january this year and i talked about mental health which was a study we did which was the international study we did actually with the group that i work with and we looked at burnout so there's a lot of 
embryologists who are suffering or on the verges of burnouts. There's so much work that's going on. But that said, it's very difficult to like recruit younger people that actually have the skills. Now, it takes investment, okay, to train people. And the ideal thing is, of course, to find someone who's like pretty well trained or at least knows the basics. Now, there's a lot of master's courses all around the world going on teaching you know at various stages some are treating practical aspects some are treating just theoretical so there is quite a large pool of young embryologists but it's being accepted to sort of join a team because as i said there is an investment that needs to be done plus and we're sort of changing tack a little bit there's a growing workforce especially in the states there's a lot of embryologists who have worked in clinics for over 20 years or more this again was a finding from our study and these people will be re retiring soon okay and leaving the workforce so there is i think a crisis coming perhaps when we have to find the you know the members of staff to actually fill in this space again you mentioned what are people doing to alleviate this two things i'd like to mention one is that there seems to be more and more what i call locum but you call per diem embryologists okay and it's a supply and need i mean there are many more that are coming out and they can actually move from clinic to clinic and give their skills to a clinic who for, for many reasons needs to have more staff okay they have to be mobile they have to be very well trained to sort of go to another lab in fact cook in another kitchen if you like okay they have to know all the equipment they have to know all the protocols and they have to assimilate very quickly into you know a lab so there's many more per diems coming into the fray if you like and one thing which is changing is that now that the clinics are sometimes in chains you know the corporate companies which are coming out the advantage of those is that they can in fact relocate or they can move around their staff so now i'm terrible at the geography of the states but you know let's say that it's spread across you know, the nation, if there's a shortcoming in one of the clinics, okay, in some kind of conglomerate, then they can, in fact, you know, move around people to sort of care for that. So that I think answers, that's a very long answer to, you know, the, you know, the question, but there are ways around everything. Again, it's a good time to be an embryologist because there are many jobs out there. That's right. It's a seller's market if the embryologist is the seller in this context. So people are, they're recruiting, they're using per diem folks. Is there any acquiescence to the burnout in from the side of the clinic and the lab in that, okay, well, we just can't hire enough per diem folks or we can't replace the, the folks that are being burnt out. Our current staff are, are telling us they're burnt out and we're so afraid if we lose even one that we'll, our problem will be compounded that much more. Is anyone saying, okay, well, our wait list for patients might be Two months to start IVF? Well, sorry, we're going to have to make it three or two and a half because otherwise we're going to burn out our embryologists. Is anyone acquiescing as far as you can? I, I know of one example that, that like slowed down their treatments, and that's a clinic in the UK, actually, who, through staffing reasons, they just had to, okay? And and it's all power to them for, to be able to do that because you cannot run a clinic, you know, on a shoestring and you cannot run a clinic... You know, if, you know, if there's not an adequate number of staff. So I think that has been the case, but it has been the case even with the pandemic, if you think about it, the way that they've had to slow down. In the UK, the clinics have had to stop completely. I know in the States, that wasn't the case in every single state in North America. But, you know, there has been this like management of staff to sort of keep some furloughed, if you like, okay, and sort of like gear them up again to be done. 
what has happened in the pandemic is that there's been a lot of like a transfer. It's a bit like football. There's been a lot of, you know, key players that have moved from clinic to clinic. And that's been the case, not just in the IVF world, but also in any kind of industry. We've found people have re-evaluated their, you know, their, you know, their values and their job. And if they haven't happen, if they haven't been happy in a, in a particular job and feel a bit disgruntled with that company, then they had a great opportunity to change. We've seen a lot of fluidity over the last few months. I don't know if you've noticed as well. There's been a lot of changes going on. And that, of course, that of course fuels why people have been advertising so much. So there has been more change going going on in that market. You say it's a, it's a seller's market. Well, I cannot talk about salaries. You know, there are, you know, clinics which are offering like sign-up bonuses for that, which I think is a great incentive, but salary isn't everything. And that's very easy for me to say, but you know, there are various things in your working life that you can look at as opposed to just salary being the reason where you leave. We know that embryologists are, are the greatest asset to a clinic. But if they're so good, then you always have the danger that they're going to leave. Now, I was, I've was i been in lab management. I'm an, I'm an embryologist, but I've been in lab management for many years, over 30 years. And some of your staff may be like headhunted, you know, and may be taken away. Well, that's inevitable. You have to be gracious when that happens. There are wheels within wheels. We're still a very small community, embryologists. I don't know how many thousands we are worldwide, but we are quite sociable and we all meet up, you know, even more so virtually. So it's to be gracious. And if they have to go, they have to go. But there are you know, many ways that you, that you can keep an embryologist and it can be, and, and, and you refer to burnout, it can be just the flat fact that you, you give more amicable uh, working hours or you know, flexible hours. I was having this conversation with Dr. Tony Anderson from oh, Texas yes, yeah. and, mm-hmm. and he was saying the exact same thing that you said, but I pushed back and said, well, how do you give people better working hours or fewer hours when the pew of patients is figuratively around the corner. And if you do that, then you're either pushing back treatment for people or you are putting the workload onto another embryologist. How do you do that when the demand is so high? Well, I'm sure there's no company that's going to give someone you know, extra time off if that's at the detriment to their lab staff. Okay. But it's all part of management. You know, it's all part of lab management. You have to have redundancy anyway. Okay. That is a day-to-day thing that a lab manager has to, you know, cope with. There's always going to, there's always going to be someone, you know, in your large chain of clinics that's, you know, you know, going to be ill for one day, um, going to have to take time off for like personal reasons. So you should always find that you can fit people to their abilities. Now you you have to have younger staff. I'm not saying you can't, and you have to train them and you have to train them on the job. Like I said, there are many training colleges around, okay, especially in North America. Then you have someone who has the competencies to sort of start with a less learning curve, okay, when they join the lab. It is a commitment to the lab manager to actually see that everyone is competent and everyone starts off. But, you know, that has to be done. In the UK, in fact, there's a new sort of subset of embryologists think they're called lab practitioners. I could be wrong, but they just do egg collections and semen analysis. So they do, let's say, you know, limited workload, but it can be like a job which would take an embryologist, you know, hours away from doing other work. While the other more experienced people will do, you know, the embryo biopsies, the ICSI, make up the culture medium. So, you know, there are ways around that. What do you think should be eliminated, Giles? In, in- any workflow, there's 
the priority is eliminate, automate, delegate. And when you're getting so busy, you have to be extra scrutinous. What do you think could be eliminated or automated readily that you still see many labs not doing? I think, you know, a lot of it is the paperwork. Okay. Now you don't have to be paper free, but you can be paper light in a lot of the clinics. A cornerstone of clinical embryology is, of course, quality control. Okay. But you still see people walking around the lab with, you know, pieces of paper, you know, with, with a, a little tick box. Okay. There are now electronic means, reflections, where it's an app where you can just electronically type in all these numbers you have to do. And they're forgotten about in a way uh, until you want to actually retrieve them and reflect on them for any number of reasons. Okay. There's lots of things that can be done around the lab, which again can be automated. You do, in fact, have these alarm systems on most of the critical pieces of equipment, but you still have to um, visually check them every day. Okay, I'm not saying that you shouldn't, but there's a lot of paperwork that goes on. Now, embryology as well, and we've spoken about this um, many times between the peers, is there's a lot of admin work that is done with embryology. Now, that is a root of uh, great concern because uh, when an embryologist is trained, he doesn't realize that he's got to do a lot of quality control assessments and he's got to do stock taking and the, and the inventory to look after the you know, cryobank. Okay. Even speak to patients. A lot of people aren't aware that they have to do that when they train to be an embryologist. And it could be that the embryologist wants to spend time on the bench work. So, you know, automating all this like, interaction with the patients, if you don't want to, or all the admin, it could be done. And there's not an efficient EMR at the moment, which can help with that. You've got to take yourself out of your working routine and type things in. But, you know, that will change. We often speak on our initiative about, you know, like smart devices. Now, in the future, there'll be, you know, like perhaps smart dishes where you haven't got to use, uh, you know, sticky labels. Um, There'll be voice to action, certain ways that you can witness things in that sense. But technology is coming just to take all the admin away from the embryologist. So that will be a good thing. Well, there are some life sciences companies out there now helping with replace a lot of the manual systems and both with storage and managing. If they're not cleaning up right now on the heels of labs needing to become more efficient because they can't fill enough embryologists, then they don't have a very good sales platform. I think there are some solutions out there. I'm not qualified necessarily to speak right now, the pros and cons of each, but are these some of the things that you talk about in your initiative that you call I3, which is the International IVF Initiative? Tell us more about that. What do you do there? Sure. Well, to answer your question about does it does it fill the void? Well, it's certainly a space which is being filled up by many companies. So obviously, you know, there is work for everyone to do. Making things automated and one is with the, you know, like cryo storage, it's a no-brainer just because why should we have to check ourselves visually every year that we put something in the right place? If it can be done automatically, then it should be done, you know, once. AI, of course, has perhaps been overused these past few years. I mean, you know, everything is AI at the moment, but it's like tangible benchtop AI, which is going to come out and actually help us. It'll rank things for us. It'll help us choose embryos a little bit better, but we'll still have to have embryologists that, that will actually look over the results. You know, it's like a driverless car. Will we allow 
complete control over, you know, like a driverless car, we'll still have to look at this, you know, this data to help us. That will be a, an improvement because now you, you know, you'll know about time-lapse and time-lapse imaging, which is a fantastic way forward. It's a better way to incubate. It's undisturbed. But to choose an embryo, an embryologist may spend, you know, a much longer time, if they have time, looking over these images and trying to choose which is the best embryo. He may call over one of his colleagues and, you know, and have a debate, purely because you have the luxury of seeing the videos of that sense. So all these new technologies we talk about in our initiative, but it, it talks about so much more. It's really addressed to clinic staff. We have a slight majority of embryologists, but also clinicians and, and lab managers follow this initiative. We usually have them once a week. It's become very popular, but we do the whole gamut of the IVF industry. So we do like the cutting science, okay, what's happening with new articles and practices. We can then do about new innovations. So again, we do about what's new on the market. But we've also touched on the field of embryology and looked at things that concern them, like cry governance, which is, of course, affecting everyone with the recent, you know, dewer failures, which are happening. Everyone's is paranoid, to say the least, about getting things right. We've looked at staffing levels. We've done a survey, which was awarded, which has been awarded at the Fertility 2022 for its work. We looked at mental health in the international survey, which I think I sort of touched on beforehand, but there's a lot of data in there. There's a lot of data that we know now about the psyche of the clinical embryologist. And then, of course, we've done a few webinars as well, which have looked at animal um, reproduction, okay, cloning, stuff which, you know, is interest to people. I think they do our job, which can, if you, if you can add that to your daily speaking with the patient, give, you know, weird and wonderful, you know, explanations from nature, then, then that's quite good, really. And we've even gone off piste and had people from NASA that have spoken to us because, as you know, every five minutes, people are popping into space nowadays. And there are reproductive hazards with that. There's microgravity, there's the radiation problems, and it's, it's not being discussed. So people are doing experiments on sperm and embryogenesis in space, which I think are interesting, not just as an embryologist, but the lessons they learn can actually help some of the medicine here on Earth as well. So we've done about everything, as you can see. When did you start? We started just as the pandemic hit, actually, the start of 2020. And it, it, it was Jack Cohen who got us all together. He felt, you know, and he's a great visionary. So he thought that embryologists would need someone to talk and, and to discuss things, especially as, you know, they were like furloughed and at home and in this uncertain time. And he got together with Thomas Elliott of IVF.net, who's a bit of a IT wizard. And he set up a website and... and they had the idea to have these like webinars. Now, of course, everyone has been doing webinars, but I think we've done something a little bit special. They've been very popular. And together with those two, Jacques brought in Peter Nage, okay? And they will look at like the scientific content of everything. And then we've had Marianne, who's been with us in the IVF industry for a long time. Shaista Sadruden as well. She helps out. And Colin Howells, of course, who's quite a well-known figure in the pharmacy world. So... That's the core band, if you like. But we've been helped with, you know, so many people in the IVF industry. So many people have wanted to help us. Lisa Nell Thermat has helped us out. Dara Berger, Alison Campbell, another person from the UK, and two others, Alison Bartolucci and Kelly Ketterson, have all sort of helped behind the scenes to make these things a success. You mentioned that you have, it's embryologist heavy, but you have a number of clinicians and 
physicians and lab managers. What kind of crowds are you are you getting now that the pandemic is now that people are aren't on Zoom every second of the day like they were in March and April of 2020? About what's an average crowd for you now? Okay, well, we get about an average 600 to 800 people every webinar. I'm told is pretty good, especially as like companies that hold webinars. You know, don't do very well at all but it's because it's because they're entertaining you know yourself and and your interview skills are fantastic you have to make people buy into the time that you want to give them you know they're working hard it's their own personal time okay you know it's got to be something that they want to listen to and you know and we have topics where i think people want to listen to you know it's got the scientific core but it's also entertaining as well you know no one wants to finish you know like a long day and listen to like a commercial you know, on a certain project, you know, at the start of the pandemic, of course, it was much higher, we were having over a 1000 people attend, but it's like leveled off to the numbers, which I've said, and then of course, it's put on the websites afterwards, and then many 1000s watch it uh, on demand, as they say, yeah. Are they mostly coming from the UK and Europe? What's your distribution like? I'd say it's over half from North America. Okay. And then after that, it's sort of pretty similar numbers, but I wouldn't say that, you know, too many people from the UK watch it shame on them but i say it's like north america and then the rest are all very similar you know we've got uk as well obviously we've got a great following from india now in india usually the time that we show these webinars it's like 11 12 o'clock at night but thankfully that you know they stay up to listen to it as well we do have them on other times you know from time to time but the time we usually have them which is 3 p.m eastern it's sort of our slot so we're quite pleased that we've got you know like a global following so what are some of the insights that you've gleaned in the last few months? Because on this show, I talk about the business side of the field. And when I have lab folks on, I talk about the business side of the lab. But I'm not having any sort of topics on about the latest techniques on, on going to day five or beyond glasses. And I'm not, you know, I'm, I'm not covering hatching. Yeah, for sure. But you know what it is, though. But you know what it is, you see. And that's the thing. And we'd still have people who own a clinic who will maybe want, you know, want to dip into, you know, a webinar just because it's much more practical experience. So it'll have someone talking, you know, perhaps about, you know, like hatching blastocysts, you know, as you said, but it will say it may be in a terrible discussion where you've got people from, you know, leading clinics all over the world and they're talking about, well, I do it like this and I do it like that. So it'll perhaps, you know, help them sort of manage either their workload or their sort of plan about how they want their clinic to go. So that's what they glean from it, you know, you know, and we have a large, we have a very large, let's say following. Uh, we have like over 18,000 members, but that doesn't mean that they watch it every week. Of course, you're going to have like a subset of people that are going to be interested in, you know, sperm and semen analysis. Now, even if 20% of those watch it, then that's a very, then that's a really big number. You know, other people who are interested in like the tech side of it are going to be that. And other people which are medicine are going to, you know, fall from that field. So, you know, by having a large net, if you like, and being global, we can get the numbers which are quite envious in anyone's books, I think. Especially for people that want to talk to embryologists right now. So who can join? Is this, is this, a membership that people have to sign up Any, for? Anyone can join. It's completely free and it'll, and it'll always be free. We have an electronic membership card, which is quite good that you can put on your phone. So we've noticed that, you know, that Evan has email overload. 
and sometimes especially with you know like webinars so we have a um, like a little app if you like but it's a but it's a membership card which will tell you when the next session is coming up and there'll be various offers on and you'll be like first to know about certain things so that's what we do and that's how they hear about it we've got the website which is ivfmeeting.com which has the back library of all the talks and we don't just have the you know like the whole webinar we also have them sort of cut up into each single lecture so we're finding that even like master's students or i should say in a master's course the teachers are telling the master's students to actually you know go and watch session 66 or go and watch you know the topic on this so you know it's quite an archive of like current current topics there and we do delve into you know you know the business side of things sometimes you know the management side as you said we've done a very successful you have a session coming up by the time this episode is out your session may have already passed but i see that you have a session coming up on corporate ivf yeah i think it's very exciting it's a very exciting time that we're living and you know the clinics aren't just a preserve of like a single doctor or a group of doctors anymore you know these you know this is big business and to be quite honest, I think it, you know, does need to go into the biotech arena. So we're getting these large companies, more so in North America, but it, most centers in the UK now are, there's only about three or four, you know, like groups, if you like, small in comparison, perhaps to ones in the States. But Is that across you know, the board, Giles? Now, there's three or four major groups, but are there still boutique centers in, in different yeah. markets? Or, is, or yeah. is almost everyone owned by those three or four groups? They're still boutique. They're still boutique. Um, in Europe, they are very much boutique markets. Now, okay, save a few, you know, like Ivy and, you know, and Eugene. Still, they are, the, you, know, the, you know, the preserve of like a group of doctors. But I think the writing's on the wall, you know. Um, I think it's a good model. It's a good business model. It's, it's good for quality. It's good for results. It's also good because, you know, all the research nowadays is going to come from private companies. In the States, there's no money which is given to embryo research at all. Okay, although there is funding, you know, for other forms of medicine. So it's going to be the antidote is going to be the conglomerates that are going to have the might to do this, you know, and that again is going to be like a carrot that is going to attract, you know, like embryologists that want to do that work. Big data, large number of patients. That's where the, you know, that's where the research is going to come from nowadays. That's the argument for corporate IVF. There's also arguments against it. And I, I have both perspectives come onto my show. Are you going to have a debate in your topic on corporate IVF or what are you going to cover? Well, well we don't usually have the format of a debate. Now, um, you know, there are many other webinars and even you know, the courses, conferences, which do have like a debate. It's Neither do I, just, by the way. I, yeah, I started yeah. to interrupt you because I want to sidetrack on this because so many people, I would love to have a debate on right. my right. show because so many people will email me after a certain topic and they'll say, I can't believe so-and-so said that when yeah, mm -hmm. I think they're full of it. And I said, all right, well, why don't you come on and share your perspective? No, you know, I can't. Yeah, yeah. Or, yeah. Like, well, uh, I would, it would be great if, if people would. Uh, well, I mean, I want to hear the, what are the arguments against it? Now, I'm sure they are. And I can guess that, you know, people think it's, it's not going to be personalized and whatever. But I just see the writings on the wall, you know, that's the way it's going to be. So this is the way it's happening over here. Yeah. yeah. And, I don't, and I actually don't know if these metaphors work in 
Europe or the UK, but in the it's United Troy, States, for yeah, a yeah, hundred years yeah. ago, you had yeah. a brewery in every city and town in America. There it was you know, Goebbels in Detroit. There's Genesee in Rochester. There's Old Style in Chicago, and and some of them are still around, and some of them aren't. And, but yeah. every city had its own brewery or a couple. And then yeah. as the century progressed, you had Miller, Coors, Anheuser Busch emerges the three conglomerates. Then you had South African brewing mm -hmm. by Miller, and then they oh, bought yeah. Coors together. And then, so then you have SAB Miller Coors. Actually, I do think this analogy works in Europe because InBev comes from Europe and they merged with Anheuser-Busch. So now you've really just got two conglomerates that control most of the brew. But what did we start seeing in the mid 2000s? The emergence of craft breweries again in just about every city in America. And then some of them grow and they get bought by the bigger guys. And then the middle, the new middle guys are buying the smaller guys. And, and then people are starting brand new breweries. And it happens with breweries. It happens with local and regional banks. And we also see some of it with fertility centers that this doc was yeah. a partner over here, or they worked in an REI division and they got bought and then they went off and they started their own thing. And now they're growing again. And so what's, the, yeah, so what's the answer? Yeah. So yeah, so what's the answer? Now, I mean, you know, you could say if there are these conglomerates and with your beer analogy, you know, is there choice? Well, of course there's choice because there's market forces. That's what I think. And, you know, someone's going to offer these things. And you mentioned about like the emergence of, you know, these micro breweries. Well, you know, that'll happen again, maybe with RVF. So, you know, all that. We, are, we are seeing it. So I think yeah. what I'm so saying it, is the it's cycle all good of thing. life is, is yeah. continuing. Yes, it seems to me that the trajectory of most things is consolidation and fragmentation. Happens with countries, yeah, happens with businesses. And so we're seeing consolidation right now, but I also think we're seeing fragmentation and, and niching as well. Yeah. But like while these companies are big, then they get super efficient and they get this big data and that can help the smaller ones in the long run afterwards. You know, it gives them the opportunity to fraction out, if you like. If they provide efficiencies and, and some of guests course, will yeah. come on my show and say, you know, they're not so good at providing efficiency. I've gotten accused of being both. I'm neither. Yeah. I do think there are pros and cons and I let people say which they think is. Okay. So we've, we've covered a, a lot. How would you like to conclude? Most of our audience right now comes from North America, about 75%. But there are some folks outside, I think after the US and Canada, India is our biggest listenership, but we've had listeners from Australia and, and Central Europe. You speak far more to the lab side, whereas our audience has some lab folks reach out, i.e. how we got connected, but a lot more on the clinician side and, and the business side. How would you want to conclude with our audience, either about what you see happening in the field and what you'd like to see, or what you'd like people to know about. I'd have to take a moment to think about that. I would just think about saying that what you've said to me now is, you know, that you think that you are, you know, catering for an audience, which is just mainly North America, perhaps, and mainly conditions. And I think that we cater for people from the lab side of things. But as our hashtag is, it's like hashtag share the knowledge. And that's what we did, you know, first of all. And people are watching it because whether it's legal aspects or it's business aspects, as you mentioned yourself, it is coming their way. And, you know, we've got 180 countries that follow us and I'm sure you have as well, because they're going to learn something from what you're saying and they're going to learn something from what we say as well. Now, maybe they've got different laws and a thing that we have seen, not just with my, with my day job, but also with I3 is that every clinic works differently. 
okay they may have similar protocols but every clinic works slightly differently but they have these common problems in each country and each region has a way to you know solve that but you know the issue of you know cryo governance and what you're going to do with your non-compliant embryos for example what you're going to do about safety what you're going to do about quality control what about the legal aspects what you're going to do about staffing levels as we mentioned whatever it is it's coming their way we've had some sessions on treatment of same-sex couples we've had some sessions on trans folk which um, applies to perhaps my country uk and yours more where it is more open and it's more accepted but there's a service towards that many other countries in the world that's an opportunity for many of these people but it's coming their way you know this globalization is happening and they can learn from you know like reaching out and having programs like yours like mine and like others where they can just see the writing is on the wall and what is coming up in the future well i thank you for coming on to share some of that with this audience i hope our audience will come and check out your initiative the international ivf initiative at ivfmeeting.com and we'll link to that in the show notes and hope that they benefit from the insights of the things that are coming their way thank you very much for coming on the show Giles. thank you very much you've been listening to the inside reproductive health podcast with griffin jones if you're ready to take action to make sure that your practice thrives beyond the revolutionary changes that are happening in our field and in society, visit fertilitybridge.com to begin the first piece of the fertility marketing system, the goal and competitive diagnostic. Thank you for listening to Inside Reproductive Health.